So I, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm going to ask five questions. You are going to respond to those five questions. You may think, well, no, my mommy and daddy told me I could not speak in church. Well, no, now you'll get in trouble if you don't speak in church, okay? So here we go. Now pay attention. Details are important. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Question number one. Did God love Peter before he went to prison? All right, good job. Was Peter's imprisonment the result of any sin he had committed? Not that we're aware of. (laughs) Did Peter's imprisonment have to pass through the hand of God before it took place? Yes. Did God respond to the prayers of his people? Was God actively involved in Peter's rescue from prison? You have just made an A on your first test this morning. There's going to be two, all right? But at least you got an A on the first one. And they're telling me at the back, if you don't have a scripture journal and would like one to take notes with the message, raise your hand and we'll get you a scripture journal that we give out to all of our new guest here at the Bridge, uh, not the Bridge Church, that's where I used to pastor in Seattle, at Alathia Church here in Gainesville. I do it all the time. I, I catch myself sometimes, not today. Okay, so now let's just be honest. This Peter story is the story that we all love, that when you and I get in trouble in life, when we feel like we are locked up in prison, things are not going well, that there is no one else to turn to, these are the kind of stories that we go to because we go to these to get to be encouraged, to have our faith strength, to say, God, look, you can get me out of this situation. I mean, look how easy it was for you. Like, you just sent an angel. He unlocked the, the chains on Peter, and Peter was set free. So, dear Lord, please right now come to me and rescue me in the mess that I am in. Lord Jesus, please come help. And we love these stories. And we should turn to these stories in the Scripture because they are incredibly important to our faith. But there may be a little part of the story you didn't pay attention to very much, that most people don't pay attention to very much because it's kind of the unpleasant part of the story, and it's the part that we want to skip over. Look back up in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, let's ask those same five questions about James. Did God love James before he was put to death by the sword? Was James' death the result of any sin he had committed? 
Did James' murder have to pass through the hand of God before it took place? Did God respond to the prayers of his people? Maybe not the way they wanted, but he did respond to them. Was God actively involved when James was killed by the sword? Yes. Now, you notice how the answers weren't near as resounding and as vocal in the, in the second set? Those questions are a little tougher to answer. Last week, we continued to model for you here at our church our discipleship strategy of engage, encourage, equip, and empower by asking one of our young eagles, Dan Green, to preach God's Word to us. I'm just going to tell you, he did a wonderful job to be 24, 25 years old, only his fifth time ever preaching, and to handle the topic of suffering and the sovereignty of God. He did an amazing job uh, with that text. And he bestowed upon us a lot of wonderful, practical truths straight from God's Word. He showed us from Scripture that God is sovereign in our suffering. He showed us that God uses our suffering that God gives us one another in the church to help us walk through suffering, that Jesus suffered for us, and that one day suffering will end. I hope you were here and were encouraged by the message. If not, go back and listen to it. Get on the Aletheia Gainesville channel on YouTube, and you will be greatly encouraged. And it's going to kind of serve as part one of today's message, though I'm going to include as much as I can to make it seem like one whole for those of you who weren't here. Because today I'm going to pick up on and continue to talk about the theme of suffering. Now I hope you, I know that you were hoping I was going to concentrate on the Peter part of this passage, but because we are so apt and prone to jump past the unpleasant parts of Scripture, it is sometimes those are the places that we need to to dive into to make sure that we are fully well-rounded in our person and in our understanding of who God is and how He works in the world. And so, because we're talking about suffering today, again, like I'm going to ask you not to tune me out. And here's why. Because if you will take what I teach you today and you will learn to properly apply it to your life, you will be blessed. And not only will it have a great impact on your life, but you will then be able to be a great blessing to other people who suffer in your midst and in your presence. Throughout your life, you will deal with people around you who are suffering. And we have been blessed to be a blessing. So this message will serve you well so that you can bless others when they are suffering. I personally believe that an improper understanding of suffering and the role that God uses it to play in our lives is one of the most likely things, if not the most likely thing, that shipwrecks a person's faith. And part of the reason is because we live in America. And America is a land of optimism. We believe that if we do the right things, work hard, we will be rewarded with a great life. This is ingrained in us. Just look at all of our movies. We love movies with happy endings. We aren't French, right? I mean, we watch movies and we expect there to be a happy ending. What happens when we don't get our happy ending? We get mad. We get angry. We have been trained to expect the happily ever after. Every one of us expects to marry a great spouse. Every one of us expects to raise great kids. We all expect to have a great job with great pay that gives great meaning to our lives. We all expect to have a nice house, a fat bank account, a good retirement plan so we can retire early and ride off in the sunset until we breathe our last. This is bred in the heart of every single American. 
But what happens if our story ends up like James? With all these hopes and expectations, what happens when our spouse deeply wounds us? What happens if they say they don't love us anymore and run off with someone else? What happens if in spite of being the best employee, the higher-ups in accounting cook the books and our company gets shut down overnight? How will I respond if the child that I have raised and nurtured tells me they hate me? How will I respond if the person closest to me in this world or even I myself get diagnosed with an incurable disease? Will these moments drive me to God or will they drive me from God? If we don't have a good theology of suffering when the storms of life hit, we find ourselves and our faith dashed upon the rocks. So what I am going to say to you today is not with the intention to dash your hopes and dreams upon the rock, but to strengthen you and encourage you that when the storms of life hit, you will be ready and not be destroyed. The first passage we're going to look at today is Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Now, if you're not familiar with the biblical account, there is this thing that we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. If you've never read it, you can go read Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. It is the greatest sermon ever preached. How do I know this? Because Jesus preached it, all right? Jesus, if you ever ever say, man, that was the greatest sermon I ever heard, I'll say, well, I remember if you ever heard, but it's not the greatest one ever preached, right? Because the greatest one ever preached is the Sermon on the Mount. So I think it is very important that in Jesus' longest, biggest, most detailed sermon in all of Scripture, that it's very, it should be very pertinent to us that we pay attention to the conclusion of Jesus' sermon. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, I don't know the context in which you've heard this passage before. It's pretty easy that it gets taught as, okay, so what are you going to do with your life? You're going to build your life on the sand and have it all fall apart one day? Or are you going to build it on the rock and everything's going to go well for you for the rest of your life? But what nobody really kind of talks about when when they get to this part is, hey, the storm hits both houses. But notice the guarantee. The guarantee was that the the house would not what? Fall. It said nothing about the shingles being ripped off the roof. It said nothing about six inches of flooding ended up on the first floor, right? It said nothing about rocks getting thrown through the window. It is true that the house stands, but it does not mean that it does not get beaten and battered by the storm. And so we need to understand that as much as God loves us, I mean, these wonderful songs that we just sang about Jesus coming, overcoming sin, death, and hell so that we could be called the children of God, all of these things are true, but it does not mean that the storms of life just pass us by. For the Bible says it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. The storms hit both houses. So we are going to take Jesus' words from this sermon, and I'm going to help you build some nice framing on the solid rock of God's Word today when it comes to the topic of suffering. So that if you are in the midst of suffering, or one day when you are suffering, you 
will see the house stand. Because it has been said by someone and repeated by many other pastors that right now you are either coming out of a storm, in the middle of a storm, or heading into a storm. Those are your three choices. You're in one of those places right now. It may be bright and sunny skies where you're sitting, but guess what? This is Florida. It's going to rain and thunder and lightning really soon. This is life. So, to build our house upon the solid rock and understand this topic, the first thing we must have in our, the first side of the frame is proper expectations. Proper expectations of what? Blessing and suffering. If you're taking notes, here's what I want you to write down. Here's what you need to know. As a follower of Jesus, you should expect blessing, but don't be surprised by suffering. Now, some people, they're always expecting the suffering. That's not how the Bible teaches it. The Bible tells us to expect blessing from God, but don't be surprised by suffering. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 28, 1 through 6. I I want you to see the heart of God toward His children. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you, And overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. This is just a very small section of God confirming His covenant to the nation of Israel. Can you see that God's heart and intention toward His children is to bless them? Now, you might say, well, that is the under the old covenant. That is the way God used to work in the world. And some people today want to draw these super sharp distinctions between the old and the new covenant. And though there are some distinctions, I do not think it is one you should so clearly try and draw between blessing and suffering. Because Paul, who wrote most of our New Testament is very much convinced that God still plans to bless you as followers of Jesus if you obey His commandments and do the things that He calls you to do. Specifically when it comes around our money and finances. In His longest discourse about giving to the church and supporting the work of the church around the world, look at what Paul says to the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6-11. through The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Let me just tell you, he's taking this direct from the Old Testament text. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. I am 100% firmly convinced that God intends to bless every area of our lives as we follow Him and conform our lives to His instruction to our lives. 
God wants to bless us so that we can bless other people. We should expect blessing from God when we are walking in His ways. But we should not be surprised by suffering. Look at what it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Now, the reason that we include this and we think about this is let's be honest. Many of us, if not all of us, when trouble and heartache and sorrow and suffering come into our lives, we say, hold on, God. I am being a good little boy or a good little girl right now. I have done nothing wrong. Why are you bringing this into my life? We ask those questions. We ask God, why? As if we are surprised. And Peter tells us, do not be surprised at the fiery trial you are facing. And basically, he is just Paraphrasing what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will, also, they will also keep yours. So Jesus tells us that we should expect some type of suffering in this life. So in order to suffer well, we must first have proper expectations. To expect blessing, but don't be surprised by suffering. Now, let me tell you why having proper expectations is very important. Because one of the most defining moments of my life, and I can still see myself sitting there in this premarital class at a church at First Baptist Church of Euless, Texas, with my wife, and this guy on a video screen said, 90% of all the problems you are going to have in your marriage are due to unmet expectations. I want you to know he lied. 99.9% .9 of all the problems I have in my marriage are due to unmet expectations. And I promise you, if you will just look at your relationships, if you look at your interactions with other human beings, all, almost always, the source of conflict is due to unmet expectations. Well, I thought you were going to do this. You thought this person was going to respond a certain way. You thought the class was going to go this way. You thought the marriage was going to go this way. You, you, we put these things on people thinking it's going to go a certain way, and when it doesn't, we get mad. And it's not because the person necessarily did anything wrong. It's just the fact that we had, uh, had some unmet expectations along the way. And it's really hard to get over unmet expectations, right? So in order to properly frame this and in order to, 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 to get a handle on this, because if we only expect blessing from God and, we, we're, and we're surprised by suffering, what happens to us? We get mad at God and we complain a really long time and we get stuck in a rut, sometimes taking years to come out of. We can get angry and we can get bitter. And many times as I've walked people through down this road over the course of many, many years, it was due to a, just a, a set of unmet expectations that called all of this stuff to build up in their lives. So if we're going to build our house upon the rock, like Jesus told us to, number one, we may have proper expectations. Now I want you to know the next thing that I say, this is where we're going to get really deep in the weeds. You might want to argue with me and discuss things with me afterwards. That's fine. But let me make my case right here, okay? Number two, all suffering passes through God's hands. Now, let me say, that's great when it's happening to other people. When it's happening to us, 
we are not a big fan. And I understand this may bring up a lot of wounds and a lot of questions and a lot of hurt. Let me give you the, the theological stance and if we need to talk personally about some other things, because I understand emotionally there's a lot that could be happening right here. So I don't want to discount that, but right now I just want to lay the framework for what I'm talking about. I and the elders and pastors of this church have a very high view of the sovereignty of God. We actually believe verses like Proverbs 16.33 are true. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. If you don't know what a lot is, it's rolling the dice. This is what that verse is saying. It said a few weeks ago when my family and I were playing a rousing game of Yahtzee. When there were four Yahtzees rolled in a row, which is statistically improbable. Every roll of the dice was determined by God. Because that's what the Bible says. One of our values here at the church is the Bible. And we believe every word of it. We believe it is divinely inerrant, inspired word of God. Whether we like it or not, whether we understand it all or not, we do believe that every roll of the craps table was determined by God because His word says so. We believe verses like Amos 3.6. God says, this is God speaking, Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? God takes full responsibility in this case. Exodus 4.11 Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Many people want to believe that genetics has the final say. God says, no, I'm in control and in charge of all genetics. Do I not make people exactly how they are? Again, and just one of the things to pay attention, God takes full credit for these things. A lot of times we as Christians try to spend our time excusing God from these things. But yet, God is like, don't excuse me from something I'm taking full credit for. And when you read in Scripture, there are many things that will surprise you that God takes full, unashamed credit for. But yet, we try to explain it away like, oh, no, 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 no. God's God's like, no, I'm taking this. Now, just because my ways are higher than your ways, just because you can't understand me, doesn't mean you have to explain me away. Rather, try to explain things within the framework that I'm giving you of what I state to be true. Because though it may be hard to grasp, it is still true. Look at Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God besides me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. It's tough to reconcile some of these passages when we are to expect blessing but not be surprised by suffering. It's tough to reconcile some of these passages when we are now currently right now thinking about our own suffering in our life and how did God bring that into my life and is God responsible for that or not? How does that work? But look at what it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Is it more comforting to know that your suffering is according to God's will or that it's outside of God's will? And if you're still having a hard time going, oh, I just don't, I mean, I, I know, I know it's what the Bible says, but Daniel, you're just cherry, you, you maybe you're cherry-picking a lot of verses to just make it sound because you're not giving us the whole context. And I've been through some really hard things, and, and I just don't want to believe and accept that, that God is this involved and has willed my suffering. 
Let me give you these verses to contemplate from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. This is talking about Jesus. It says, Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. Now I just want you to just, just, just pause for a second. I just think what it says. Everything in subjection to Him. Nothing is outside of His control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. One of the things that often happens when we begin to suffer is we begin to embrace the lie that I don't deserve to suffer. Now, just let me explain to you and state to you, there's only one person who ever did not deserve to suffer. But yet he suffered in our place. All suffering passes through God's hands. Now, again, it's easy to embrace when it's distant from us. It's really hard to embrace when it's when we're in the midst of the storm of life. I'm going to introduce to you a term you may have never heard before, okay? We're about to get we're about to go so deep in the theological waters, but I'm going to bring you right back up, all right? I'm going to dunk you under about 100 feet deep. We're going to come right back up really fast, all right? My goal is that we don't get the bends on the way back up, okay? So, theological word concurrence. All right? You may have never heard this word before. Here's the definition, if you're taking definitions. Two or more parties can act in the same event and produce a given outcome without par all parties having the same intent. All right? If you want to begin to understand suffering in our lives and how God works it and uses it, you've got to know this definition, and you've got to learn this definition. You've got to learn this term. Okay. Now, I'm going to give it to you in story form. Okay. Before I give it to you in story form, I'm going to ask you a question. Do not answer out loud. In the story of Job, if you are familiar with the biblical story of Job, whose idea was it that Job suffered? I have asked this question to people many, many times. In the context of today's sermon, you're going to have a little cheat and know which way it's going. But in normal conversations with people, the overwhelming majority always says, Satan. But I want you to notice what happens in the text. Look at Job chapter 1, verses 7 through 12. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now let me just say what he's saying. Basically saying, this is the most righteous dude on planet earth. All right? There is nobody, like none of us in this room, even come close to him holding a candle to Job. He is as righteous as they come, as good a dude as they come. Satan answers the Lord and says, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. 
but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, if you know the story, in what happens, this group of the Chaldeans and Sabaeans are going to come against Job, and they are going to kill his children. They are going to take all of his livestock, all of his cattle. Everything is going to be destroyed in Job's life except his nagging wife. That's the only gift God leaves him. And he's the most righteous dude on planet earth. So how does this topic of concurrence work in our lives? I'm going to read to you something from Ligonier Ministries. And if you don't know who that is, maybe you know the name R.C. Sproul. When talking about this story and the definition of concurrence, he says that Satan instigates the suffering by issuing a challenge to the Lord regarding Job's piety. God allowed Satan to bring suffering into Job's life. The Chaldeans and the Sabaeans attacked Job's family and stole his livestock. But the intent of each party in producing the same outcome, Job's suffering, was different. Satan intended to discredit Job and by extension discredit God. The intent of the Chaldeans and Sabaeans was to enrich themselves. Our Lord's intent was to vindicate Job's faith. Each of these players was necessarily involved in Job's suffering, but at different levels and with different motivations. There was a concurrence among them that Job should suffer, but each had a different reason for this suffering. God's intent was good. The other players intended evil. Here's the hardest thing to believe when we're suffering is that God's intent is good in our suffering. But you need to know this definition, this, these scenes of concurrence take place all throughout Scripture. Think about the story of Joseph. Does Joseph not say in that famous line that we all love after all the, the end of the, the years, the decades of trials, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Do we not see this story over and over and over? What the Jewish leaders intended for evil, what the Roman Guards intended for evil. Did God not intend for good when He placed our Savior upon that cross to die for our sins? Jesus suffered bringing about our good. In, in this story of Acts chapter 12 today, we've already told you that the church was called to go to the nations, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost ends of the earth. Back in the story of Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, we know this is about eight to ten years after Jesus made that statement. So for eight to ten years, the Jewish people had still been disobedient in not taking the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. So what does God set in motion to spread the gospel around the world? Persecution of the church. It spreads the church. It's sending it out. Church, let me say something to you. We wouldn't be sitting here today if there were not hundreds and thousands of stories just like this in the Scripture. God using persecution to spread the church. Because you know what happens to us when we get all comfortable and happy with our life with Jesus? We want to park it right here and we just want to absorb all the blessings that we can all the time and just take all of this good stuff God has for us and live these nice, wonderful, comfortable lives. And let me say, there is nothing wrong with loving one another and hanging out with one another and fellowshipping with one another and discipleship with one another. But let me just tell you, there are times when you get so fat and happy and God says it's time to lean you out a little bit. 
right? It's time, to, it's time to exercise your faith a little bit more. And He will bring suffering into our lives so that we can spread the good news of this gospel. Because you know what happens, right, when we start the suffering? We start suffering, we realize that these things aren't near as good and great as we thought they were, and we find how much more precious Jesus is to us than anything else, and we start telling that story, and we start talking about Jesus a whole lot more than we start talking about our nice new car, or our nice new house, or our nice addition to our swim pool that we're adding on, whatever. We stop talking about those things because Jesus becomes more precious to us. And so God brings this into our lives to show us and remind us of how good and great He is and how wonderful and awesome Jesus is. And so what you have to see from this is point number three today is that your suffering has a purpose. Listen, suffering is never wasted. And Romans 8, 28 and 29 tells us this. We know, as the children of God, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now just let me ask you, do you actually believe that? Do you actually believe that all things, blessing and suffering, work together for your good? For those who were called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Hold on, no, no, go back. I knew you were going to do it to me. Stay right there. All right. I, I, I'm going to give you one of the biggest keys to Scripture. For the rest of your life, you're going to hear somebody say, I wonder what God's will for my life is. Romans 8.29 is where you always take them. All right? God has one goal for every follower of Jesus, to conform you to the image of His Son. All right? Now, what that's going to look like is going to look a bunch of different ways. But God's will for your life is to conform you to the image of Jesus. Now, let me link this to suffering because it's, it's in Hebrews 5, and I can't remember if it's 8 or 9. It says that Jesus was made perfect through, come on, say it, suffering. Jesus, who was sinless, His sacrifice was made perfectly complete through suffering. So if Jesus had to suffer, guess what? We will have to suffer as well. And so that is part of the conforming us to His image. Why do you think Jesus relates to us so well in our suffering? Because He has suffered. Let me ask you something. Lost people in this world... Do you think they're suffering? Do you think you are a much better witness and friend to come alongside of them having suffered or having not suffered at all and say, no, I got this good, great, wonderful life. I got no problems at all whatsoever. God uses our suffering to help us identify with those who are suffering. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. Point four, final point, proper response to suffering is this. I've already read 1 Peter 4.12. I've already read 1 Peter 4.19. Now let me give you the whole context. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. Okay, response. What does it say in verse 13? Do you rejoice in your suffering? Philippians 2.14 says, do everything without arguing and complaining. I always say, if I could erase one verse, that'd be my verse. All right? It's a vast difference. When you suffer, are you obedient to the Scripture or are you disobedient to the Scripture? 
Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Now, notice how he ties your present circumstances and rejoicing in suffering to the rejoicing you will experience in the second coming of the King. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, this is not a judgment of punishment, okay? That was for the murderer and evildoer. But what is this? This is a purifying of your flesh, conforming you to walk more in the Spirit, not according to the flesh. This is a purification God is bringing about in your day-to-day walk. Judgment to begin at the household of God, getting rid of the sin in your life. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved... What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Let, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I'm going to give you one more passage that will make it a little simpler. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. I'm going to encourage you to make this the pattern of your life in suffering and every day. Number one, rejoice always. Number two, pray without ceasing. And number three, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will, of, for this is the will of God in Christ, in Christ Jesus for you. These are the three things you can always do. Now let me say to you, why would I give such a heavy theological sermon on this? And here's why we do theology. We do theology in the light so that we can stand on it in the dark. Okay? We do theology in the light so that we can stand on it in the dark. You have got to build this framework into your life so that when the storm hits, you are ready to resist it and go, hold on, this is not weird. It is not weird that I am suffering. I am not a special exception to all the rules. And okay, I know that the Bible tells me God is using this for my good, for His glory. I don't like it. It really sucks right now. But He told me I can't complain about it, okay? So what am I going to do? I'm going to learn to rejoice in this because I know that God is using this for some greater purpose beyond me. I'm going to pray like mad that He is going to get me out of this suffering. But even while I am, I'm going to give thanks because I know He is purifying my soul and He's conforming me to the image of Jesus. Do you see how that makes a vast difference in how we look at and feel and experience suffering in our lives? To know that God is in control of our suffering, that God is sovereign over our suffering, and He is intentionally using suffering to bring something good about in us and for other people? And so the question is, what are you going to do when God brings this into your life? If you're in the middle of it right now, or if He's going to bring it into your life, what are you going to do? Are you going to learn the lesson and be obedient to the Scripture, fully trusting and believing that you can rejoice, pray, and give thanks in the middle of this? Because just think about this passage. One of Jesus' famous commandments to us is to love your enemy. Right? Well, let me ask you a question. How are you going to do that unless he gives you an enemy? What? Right? So we don't think about that. We just, we just hear the commandment, right? Let me, let me guarantee you something. There is going to be a time in your life where God brings an enemy into your life. You are going to be a good boy and girl. You're going to be doing everything you're supposed to do. And you will have done nothing wrong. And whether it be inside of a family, inside of a business relationship... A co I don't, God will bring the most fierce, dogged enemy into your life. And you're going to think, why me, Lord? 
Why me? I didn't do anything wrong, Jesus. I said all these logical things in the conversation. I didn't do anything to cause any of this. And you're going to miss the whole point. That God is bringing this into your life to teach you how to be obedient to His Scripture. To further sanctify you and make you more like Jesus. Here's the other thing. Studies now show us this. One out of every two people in America will get cancer in their lifetime. Now here's what that means. This half of the room thinks it's going to be these people. This half of the room thinks it's going to be these people. So what are you going to do when it's you? Because one of that two people are going to get it. Immediately after this sermon, I'm hopping a plane. I'm going to Mexico to sit with a friend of mine who's 45 years old, who was the, one of the former worship leaders of my previous church, who has adopted two kids from a foreign country, who loved Jesus as much as anybody in the world, and is the husband of my wife's best friend. And I'm going to go sit with him for a week while he endures cancer treatments. How are you going to respond on that day when it's you? Are you prepared to rejoice and to suffer well in the midst of that? Knowing that God is sovereign over your suffering. But knowing that he is using it for a purpose and a glory greater than you. That if you will take what I have taught you today in this framework, you will have. Because here's the thing. We, we all want to have, we all want to impact the world for Jesus, right? But we all want to do it healthy and with a lot of money in our bank account. And all our relationships being good. None of us wants to do it getting cancer treatments. None of us wants to do it in the brokenness and messiness of life. But yet for those for whom God has chosen that path, will you embrace it? Because I promise you, if you will, you will see Jesus like you've never seen Him before. You will experience His presence like you've never experienced Him before. And you will be like the thousands and thousands and thousands of saints who have said along life's journey, I would not wish that on my worst enemy what I just went through. But I'd go through it a hundred times over because of how close it brought me to Jesus. If you will embrace suffering the way God has intended you, and you will learn to give thanks and to rejoice for every moment, you will see the world around you changed for the glory of God. And you will experience His presence and His power because where is His strength made perfect? In our weakness. And sometimes He has to make us really weak to show us His great power.